and we're thankful for it. Would you stand for the reading of the word this morning? This is the end of 1 Thessalonians, chapter 5, verses 12 through 28. Hear God's word for his church this morning. But we appeal to you, brothers and sisters, to respect those who labor among you and have charge of you in the Lord and admonish you. Esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. And we urge you, beloved, to admonish the idlers, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with all of them. See that none of you repays evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to all. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the spirit. Do not despise the words of prophets, but test everything. Hold fast to what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. May the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely, and may your spirit and soul and body be kept sound and blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. The one who calls you is faithful, and he will do this. Beloved, pray for us. Greet all the brothers and sisters with a holy kiss. I solemnly command you by the Lord that this letter be read to all of them. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Let me pray as we begin. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts Be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. And then all of a sudden we are done with 1 Thessalonians today. So for those of you who have have been tracking with us all summer long in our sermon series called Humble Hope, we are walking through both of Paul's letters to Thessalonica, what's known as 1 and 2 Thessalonians. We're finishing up with the first of those letters today, Pastor Simon will introduce us to the beginning of 2 Thessalonians starting next Sunday. Paul ends this letter, this first letter to the Thessalonians, in a fairly standard way. If we look at most Greco-Roman letters of the first century, they had some sort of uh, moral instruction that ended with the author offering a list of imperatives. So here, too, Paul offers imperatives. Another word for imperatives is rules, things that you should do and things that you shouldn't do. How are we supposed to understand Paul's ending of this letter and the rules that he lays out for the church, and how applicable are those things to us here today? I want to show you a picture. This is something that's in my house. Um, I hope you can kind of see that. We have this canvas hanging in our bathroom. You might have seen this kind of piece before. They're pretty popular now. You, you can find them sort of in, in boutiques and, and art fairs and at the Kane County Fair and those kind of places. This one is called Bathroom Rules, and it goes over several rules for us to remember in that space, especially kids. I want you to listen to this, right? You might have something like this. I'm sure your parents would be happy if you you followed some of these rules. Now, I have to admit, I'm not super into this. I'm not really into text-based art pieces in my house. It's just not really my thing, but I'm okay with this one, and this one gets to stay because my wife picked it out, and she's pretty good at picking things out for our house, so I don't want to mess with that, but also... I 
I think it's okay because as I look over the list of rules that are here, our kids could use these daily reminders, right? And sometimes, to be honest, I need a couple of these reminders every once in a while to keep our bathroom clean and functioning the way that it should. And we should read Paul's list of imperatives, starting in verse 12, as a list of commands in a similar way. So I actually took the liberty of creating my own canvas for the Thessalonian church that you can sort of read there. Uh, I'm going to make these available on Etsy for $50. No, I'm just kidding. I'm not going to do that. But So this picks up on the passage. I want to read just that section of the passage again. You can follow along in this beautiful art piece that's been created. But we appeal to you, brothers and sisters, respect those who labor among you and have charge of you in the Lord and admonish you. Esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace amongst yourselves. And we urge you, beloved, admonish the idlers, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with all of them. See that none of you repays evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to all. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the spirit. Do not despise the word of prophets, but test everything. Hold fast to what's good. Abstain from every form of evil. Like I said, I'm not crazy about this kind of art piece, but I'm really thankful we have it in our house because it's a great way for me to be reminded of the tenor of Paul's words at the end of 1 Thessalonians and some of his other letters as well. When we think of commands in our own life, we probably think of a certain rigidity, right? Like rules are kind of like a policy that we have to follow, that we have to sign on the dotted line. But I think it's actually much closer to a document sort of like this one. It's clear, and it's artistic, and it's kind of whimsical almost. Now, we could spend the rest of the summer going line by line through these imperatives and what they, what they mean and looking at biblical cross-references, but I want to look at the imperatives as a whole section this morning as we close the book of 1 Thessalonians. A few things that would be helpful to know as we think about this list. The first is, these are not all likely specific rules. Um, as I read through our bathroom rules, I can identify a command that is perfect for each one of my kids, but not necessarily for the other two kids, right? I can also identify commands in that bathroom rules list that are not an issue for any of my kids, but I still think they're pretty good rules, and I don't mind keeping it in front of our family. And I think this is true for the Thessalonian list as well. You shouldn't read through this list of imperatives and come to the hasty conclusion that all of these items are known problems in the church. In other words, we shouldn't assume that the Thessalonians weren't rejoicing or that they were impatient or that they didn't pray without ceasing or that they didn't respect their leaders. Paul knows this congregation well enough to speak to their specific issues, and I'm guessing he, he probably threw in some pretty specific things into that list, but not all of them are specific, and many of them could be received just as good sort of general words for the church. The second thing to know about this list of imperatives is that most of these rules are socially minded. Their aim is to strengthen social interaction between brothers and sisters in the church. It's the same for the rules in our bathroom, right? They are mostly social. If one of us does not pick up our stuff or clean after ourselves, someone else has to do it. It affects somebody else. So these rules are helpful for brothers and sisters in our home to know 
and to keep thinking about one another and stay in good relationship by caring for that space. It's much the same for the list for the Thessalonians. Paul has shown throughout this letter that he has a great desire for this church to continue in Christian love for one another. And these commands help Paul to end with a focus on their social life together as a church. So the second thing is it's social. The third one is that the other rules that aren't social have to do with their relationship with God. Things like joy and prayer and and charismatic discernment have social elements, but they're not really as socially minded as they are mindful of a relationship with God. So as much as Paul wants for them to grow in Christian love with one another, as indeed they are already doing, they need to be growing even more and more in relationship with God. Now, our rules for our bathroom are not inherently spiritual, but I would say that they aren't totally social either, right? I would want each of us to take care of ourselves and our home and each other in such a way that it's honoring to God and not just our fellow members. So the fourth and last thing, and this is probably the most important one, is that there is grace. There's grace. For those of you who have negative associations with rules in your life, maybe you experienced way too many of them in your early childhood or throughout your life, or you just have a reaction against them, well, I want you to know that there's grace. Our bathroom rules are kind of whimsical. They are presented warmly, not with a stern voice. It's not as if I've ever said to one of my kids, you didn't floss tonight. Please allow me to refer refer you to the art installation in the bathroom to remind you of the rules, right? No, these rules are given warmly, and they're hopefully received warmly as well. And I think that Paul's words are meant to be conveyed warmly heartfelt, with a lot of grace. As we look over this list of imperatives, we will fall short on them, right? We will not always be joyful. We will not always be patient or peaceful. We will not always be at peace with other people. But there's grace when we come up short. There's grace. So those are the imperatives, or what biblical scholars call house rules. That's what they're actually called, house rules. And Paul lays these out for the Thessalonians, and I think that that artwork is a helpful way for us to think about that section of Scripture. But I want to make sure that we don't take this too lightly. It should be read as winsome and warm, maybe even playful in points. But the whole idea of imperatives and rules were very, very important to the Thessalonian church, precisely because they were family rules or household rules. Just like our canvas is for our family, so these imperatives were for the family of believers in Thessalonica. Now, it's very important to be reminded that they saw themselves as a family. We might take that for granted in some sense, but they did not. You see, when Christians like the early Thessalonians came to hear the gospel of Jesus and respond to that gospel, when they understood and were captivated by the story of Jesus Christ, his, his life, his ministry, his death, his resurrection, and they chose to commit their lives to him as Lord and Savior, they were welcomed into a new family, a spiritual family, and that family is called the church. And we still use that language some here today. I hear it every once in a while from some of you. You'll talk about your church family, and I love to hear that. I love to hear that kind of language. But you need to know that this was not some sort of sociological fiction for the Thessalonians, some sort of 
code words to talk about that sort of strengthen that community. No, to be a church family was a sacred privilege for these Christians. You see, many of the early Christians throughout the first century Roman world were actually seen as anti-family by Greeks and Jews alike. Why would anybody say that these Christians were anti-family? Well, you see, as these believers began to follow Jesus, they stopped participating in certain social and civic uh, opportunities and activities in their community. Things like pagan worship services or, or celebratory feasts to an emperor. And by separating from these kinds of activities, these Christians oftentimes brought shame upon their households, their what we would consider nuclear families. And that often led to family divisions. To cause a, a division in the family in the Greek world was a dis- disintegration of the whole society. So many Christians were disowned by their families. They were marginalized. They were scorned by society. And so for many of them, the choice to follow Jesus meant that they were removed from their earthly families in large part. So this idea of acceptance into the family of the church, the family of God, was of profound importance to the earliest Christians. For some of them, it was the only family that they had left. Now, I certainly know some stories in the 21st century today of Christians who experience significant family strife because of their decision to follow Christ, even to the point of being shunned by their families. But these stories are not very common today. I don't hear a lot of them. For most of you here, me included, you have a pretty strong sense of family. And while the ideas of of your church being a family is a nice thought, it isn't a highly felt need for you from day to day. And because of this, sadly, we don't often function as a family in the church in the way that we should. But but I want to close today by saying something simple. We should function as a family. These friends here with you, whether you know them well or you've never met or you're just getting to know them, those who are joining us on the live stream, those who are at the service last night or the service that will happen later today, you are family. Those people are your family, and you should treat them as such. I I worked really hard this week to try and define exactly what family is. That might seem easy to you, but try and do it in your brain right now. It's actually kind of hard. You know, for our family, it's not defined by genetics or an adherence to rules, or even a uniformity of thought. Yes, we we live in the same place, and locale is an important thing for family, but that won't always be the case, right? My kids will will grow up someday and be out of the home. So the best that I could come up with for a, a working definition of family is that these are the people that you do life with, and you do that life together bound by committed love and common values. Commitment, love, and common values. And it should be the same thing with our church. These people around you here today, just like your family, should be the people that you choose to do life with. And that life together should be bound by a committed love and common values. We should be doing that with one another. When a new visitor comes into our fellowship here, they should feel that sense of love and commitment and common values. They should get a sense that, wow, this is a group of people who are doing life together. So I want to ask just a few questions as we close. As 1 Thessalonians closes for us, we we get these imperatives, these rules, 
that give us a sense of how the church family operated in Thessalonica. And it brings some questions for our church to think about too. First question is this. Do you see these people around you here today as family? Answer it honestly. Do you see them as family? Paul specifically used the imagery of family throughout his letters to talk about the church, particularly the image of membership with one another. It's a pretty strong, pretty strong image. And he did that as a way of talking about the church, not only what it is, but what it should be striving for. He wanted these disciples to see themselves as a family, whether young or old, Jew, Gentile, married, single, divorced, coming together as a family. As you sit here today, do you see these people as your family? The people that you're going to choose to do life with? That is the biblical model. So if you want to function in that way, you need to actually know each other. Spend time with each other. Learn each other's stories. I I know that our current COVID situation complicates things a great deal right now on those fronts, but maybe the first step for you is just to reach out to someone here today or someone that you know in the community here and say, I'd like to know you better because we are in a church family together. You're you're part of the family. We're, We're in a family together. Let's know each other better. So be proactive. Choose to function as a family in this way. The next question, are you participating in your church family? I know in our family, at my, in my house, everyone pitches in, everyone helps out, everyone shares their highs and lows at the dinner table, we do chores together, we work towards common goals together. Well, one thing that we know about the early church is that it was a family that valued participation. Unlike the synagogue, which was led by a few usually elderly men, wise men. The Christian church was a place where men and women and children of all ages participated. In fact, it was expected that any member might bring something to a meeting. Again, this is a perfect size right here. This would be about the size of the, of the, of the church in Thessalon- Thessalonica, right here. And it was expected that when this church got together that everyone would participate. They would bring something, a song, a prayer, a psalm, a prophetic word, a testimony. Now, if we gathered this service plus all the other services this weekend plus everyone on live stream and we asked everyone to participate, that'd be a little longer service than most of us are used to, right? But we should not give up on the ancient practice of free participation in fellowship and in worship. So let me ask, what do you bring? Do you have musical gifts? You should share them. Even if you're not really good, you should share them because you have those gifts. Are you good at serving other people? We have lots of opportunities for that. Do you love kids or teenagers? Choose to walk alongside them. Do you enjoy leading prayers? Are you gifted with technology? Are you good with finances? Do you like doing things behind the scenes? This is all part of opportunity for us to participate. And being part of a family is participating fully in family life. Church shouldn't be any different. I just want to put up a picture from this week. This was the church work day that we had on Thursday. It was a really awesome gathering. Um, I, I don't know if I got to count, but probably about 30 people throughout the morning showed up. And it was a great example of family coming together, laughing, encouraging, bringing our gifts to the family of the church to take care of this building and our property. 
I just put this up to say, if you're not currently participating, let's talk, because you should be. You should be. We suffer when your gifts are not put to use. Last question this morning is, do we trust one another? Do we trust one another? We see this a a few times in Paul's imperatives, whether it's respect for leaders of the church or not despising prophetic words or encouraging people who are idle in their faith. Much of what Paul requires is that these believers truly trust one another in their life together. I know that most of you know that family life can be messy, right? But what holds families together is love and commitment and trust. Do you trust these people? Do you trust these people to be people who can speak truth to you, even difficult truths to you? Do you you allow them to care for your emotional and maybe even material needs? Do you trust them enough to let them into your life, to open up scripture with them, to pray with them, to, to understand and hear the fullness of your story? Trust is essential. And you can't really call us a church family if we don't have trust for one another. Here, I'll just I'll put in a plug for Rooted Groups. You're going to hear about that in, in uh, the month of August. Opportunities to gather together in homes, out in backyards, smaller groups together. Rooted Groups are, are, are these places where often we can build that trust with a group of people in our church where we can really share our stories. I want to encourage you to pray about that if you're not involved in a rooted group to find, find your way into one, and we'll give you opportunities to do that. So these questions are important, but maybe never more so than right now. Family life as a church has been trying. It's been hard recently, the last five months. We, we, we can't see each other in the way that we would like to. We feel disconnected. We aren't aware of all the needs in our community. We aren't capable of doing life with one another in the way that we really want to. It's hard. It's been really hard for us as your pastors here. But this means that we need to fight the urge to be disconnected. The urge to minimize the impact of church family. The tendency to set aside family rules and say, I'll just kind of go it alone. Perhaps more than ever, you need to hear this. We need each other. We need to do life together. We need to trust one another with our faith and with our lives. So I call us this morning to commit to family life together as a church. Let's do this in a winsome and warm way to strengthen the bond between us and to strengthen our relationship with God through Christ Jesus. And remember, this is a family of grace where we deal with the messiness of family life together. I'm so blessed to call you my family. And I invite us to live more deeply into that call together. Would you pray with me? Lord, teach us what it means to truly be family as you call us to be. Brothers and sisters united in commitment and love for one another with shared values and shared mission. Lord, would you strengthen the bonds of our relationships with one another? Would you give us a sense of family as we gather with our friends here? Even for those who are disconnected from us in living rooms, 
uh, of their own spaces right now, would you give them a sense of family and connectedness? And Lord, we ask that we as a family might live in such a way that we serve as a witness to the world around us. We thank you, Lord, for this family. Would you give us the courage to live more fully into our call as brothers and sisters in Christ? We thank you, Lord, for your grace, which covers each and every one of us. In your name, amen. Would you stand for our closing hymn?